The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Support for No Excuses with John Taffer comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. Let's talk about buying a home. It can be one of the most important purchases you'll ever make. But today's fluctuating interest rates can leave you with unexpected higher payments, which can turn a great experience into an anxious one. That's why Quicken Loans created their exclusive buying power process. Here's how it works. They check your income, assets, and credit to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer, making your offer more attractive to sellers. Once verified, you qualify for their exclusive rate shield approval. They'll lock your interest rate for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. Then once you've found the one, if rates have gone up, your rate stays the same. But if rates have gone down, you get to keep the new lower rate. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com taffer. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started, because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Welcome back for another episode of John Taffer's No Excuses. On today's show, I got a lot to talk about. We're going to take in a bunch of audience calls. We got some great ones, I'm told, today. And later on, I got Lewis Howes with me. Lewis is one of my favorite people, and he's probably America's expert on greatness. And you think, boy, what does an expert on greatness know? Well, you're going to have to stick around and listen because he understands what makes greatness, who is great, and what greatness is and how you build it. It's going to be a really, really powerful interview uh, with one of my favorite people, so you want to stick around for that. But before we even get going, I have a public service announcement I need to make. This is serious stuff. I'm not messing around here, so I need your full attention. Apparently... There is a condemnation trend going on in America where people are trying to stretch their dollars by reusing old condoms. Now, listen, I have a lot of respect for my audience, but you can't reuse your condoms, guys. First of all, they get thick and stiff. They get crusty. What are you going to do? Rinse it out and use it a second time? What's amazing to me is I'm told that some people are trying to make a few dollars and they're selling used condoms on eBay and other types of sites. I say that kidding around. But I am actually reading an article, a legitimate article. This warning comes at a time when sexually transmitted diseases are on the rise. The CDC, this is our government at work, strongly suggests that people do not reuse or wash their condoms. So there is a public service announcement for today. And uh, uh, please, please do not reuse your condoms. Throw them away. 
you have a place to throw them so we don't see them when we're out water skiing in lakes or on the side of roads or in a case of bar rescue. I once found one behind the bar. So not only should you not reuse your condom, please dispose of it correctly. Thank you. That concludes this public service announcement. And now we're going to move to our entertainment news. So I like Justin Timberlake. I got to meet Justin years ago when he was working on 901 Tequila, which was a project of his. And at the time, I was running a nightclub and bar convention, which some of you know I ran for many years and was one of the founders of 30-some-odd years ago. Justin came out, and he was introducing 901 Tequila, which is a good product. And, and he was involved in the show and was a really good guy. And he has a new project. And, you know, you think of all the game shows that are out there now and how game shows are getting so popular. Justin Timberlake is producing a new game show for Fox where a contestant can win up to $20 million per episode. This is serious money for a game show. But the game involves sober contestants getting strapped to a chair. That's great already, isn't it? In an empty room where can't stop the feeling blasts from a speaker on a loop. And if they're able to make it for one hour without their head spontaneously combusting, they win. Can you believe it? So that's the premise of the show. We're going to chain you down to a chair. We're going to play Can't Stop the Feeling at a ridiculous volume for an hour. Now, that's going to make great TV. I wonder what they do during that hour when the music is blasting. <laughs> well, that'll be some interesting television. I can't wait to see that, baby. Another great television product, Hillary Clinton is back. So Hillary and Steve Spielberg are teaming up to do a TV drama about the women's right to vote which if I'm not mistaken was corrected years ago, but I'm guessing it's a historical piece looking back on women's right to vote. And you know, when I was reading this article, I couldn't help but think to myself that I really wanted to ask you a question. What do you think about politicians who know national secrets and have worked in Congress, Senate, CIA, National Security Agency, and leaving their government jobs and going to work for a media company? And then while they're working for a media company, they're not disclosing top secret information, but they're leveraging their credibility to communicate their own ideas. And if you think about the fact that politics and serving in government should be two different things. So if somebody who manages or runs the CIA or runs the National Security Agency, they have inside secrets, which makes us listen to them more than someone who doesn't have, quote, inside secrets. So our dollars, our tax dollars gave them the employment, the experience, and now the credibility to go out and use that credibility to leverage and convey their own ideas. So when this retired government individual is sitting next to a layman, his ideas always carry more weight. I should say his or her ideas always carry more weight than a layperson's does. Now, I want to ask you a question. For our entire lives, until just recently, this wasn't the case. Public servants did not go into the media and use that credibility to convey political ideas and messages. If they do that, and if they use that public service position and all the dollars that we spent on their payroll, training, travel, meeting, networking, all of that, if they now leverage that as the credibility by which to convey their own ideas, which might not be better than anyone else's. I think that that is unfair. And I think that leveraging in a title or experience that was in fact provided for you by the people of America is very, very bothersome to me. And when I read about politicians trying to 
get into the media where they're supposed to be neutral, but they're conveying their own ideas. I want a red flag to go up in your mind. Whenever somebody conveys an idea to you or an opinion to you who's a past politician or past public servant, I always want you to ask yourself a simple question. What's their motive? Is their motive themselves or is their motive us? Is their motives a bigger contract from the new service or is their motive us? If their motive isn't true, then their words can't be. And that's the point when I read an article about Hillary and Stephen, who are both, I have no issues with either of them working. And I have no issues with this film. I think it's a great topic. But I do have an issue in a generic sense with public servants having a hidden agenda and that hidden agenda creates a hidden truth, which is behind their words, not in front of their words. So let's be a, a, a very, very cautious when they speak, because when they speak, there's almost always a hidden agenda behind it. If I'm not mistaken, our president called LeBron James an idiot or some similar word the other day. And, and you know, I'm not the biggest NBA fan. I'm more of a baseball and a hockey guy. Those of you who know me know my hockey, Las Vegas Golden Knights nutcase. But, you know. LeBron James just opened an $8 million public school in Ohio. When he was a kid, he missed 83 days of school while his mother moved from one couch to a spare room. And he had a very difficult upbringing. He didn't build a charter school. He didn't build any unique, innovative school. He built a regular school. Now, 240 third and fourth graders will get to go to the school. And when he created the school... What I found fascinating about it was he really didn't want to go into charter schools or special schools. He wanted normal kids, troubled kids, kids that needed more opportunity in their lives to go to this school. So he made a point. It's not a charter school. It's not a private school. It's a real life school in my hometown. The school is far from traditional. It's a lengthy school day runs from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. with an extended year. So the school year really is longer. The hours are longer. And what's interesting is the kids that qualify for the school are kids who are scoring in a lower portion of their grade performance in school. So this is from the heart. You can see it. This is incredibly well-meaning. And anybody who spends $8 million of his money to build a public school and thinks about it this deeply and structures it this thoughtfully is far from an idiot. So, Mr. President, I agree with a lot of what you do, but I just disagree with a lot of what you say. All righty. You know, we talk about heroes all the time and, uh, uh, you know, military heroes and, and you know, there's all types of heroes in America from civilians who help somebody on the street to soldiers who risk their own lives to save our freedom or each other. Well, we now have a hero dog. There's a dog by the name of Sambra who has detected over 2,000 kilos of cocaine. This dog is so successful, she has a list of, of, of busts and has one of the longest uh, a list of busts in the entire Colombian drug syndicate. She's, and, and here's the greatest thing about this story. I love it. This dog has a $70,000 bounty on her head by the cartel. That's how effective she is. So uh, <laughs> good for you, Sombra. Who watched the Yankee game last night? Yankee Boston. You know, I'm a Yankee fan, and I love arguing with my Barstool sports buddies because most of them come from Boston, so we get into the Yankee Boston thing. But the fact of the matter is last night was really a bummer. Whenever there's a 10th inning win and Boston beats the Yankees, it's depressing as hell. 
But I'll be at the Yankee game Friday night in New York. I'm looking forward to it. I get to work with the Yankees. Uh, a few months ago, I gave a speech to their sales organization, and I'm working with the Yankees. As a matter of fact, this week, I'm going to Yankee Stadium. I'll be there to check out the Legends operations and provide feedback to the Yankee operations team. So, you know, I grew up as a Yankee fan and went to Yankee games, and now to be able to work with the Yankees and go in the back corridors of Yankee Stadium and get VIP tours of certain areas is really, really exciting for me. So, uh, uh, too bad the Yankees went down to the Red Sox, and this is going to be an ugly end of the season between these two teams. I can see that already. Who's a Michael Phelps fan? You know, he is probably the greatest swimmer of all time, but here's what's incredible. There's a kid by the name, uh, uh, his name is actually, let me see, where is his name? Clark Kent Apuda. He's 10 years old, and he already shattered Phelps' oldest swimming record, uh, 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 which is incredible. He's uh, uh, over a second faster in a 100-meter butterfly, and the kid's only 10 years old, so let's keep an eye out for him. He's going to be a definite hero in the future. You know... I was looking at this week's Bar Rescue episode, and, and uh, you know, for me, sometimes we make the episodes 10, 12 weeks before they air. Sometimes it can even be longer, and I'll make a confession to you. Sometimes you forget about them. When I've done 169 episodes, sometimes you forget about one or two until you actually see them aired. Now, I get to see all the cuts, and when we make Bar Rescue, uh, uh, the original cut is about, oh, 75 minutes or so, and then we have to edit it down and edit it down and tell the story differently, and we keep editing and editing until we get it down to, to the time that's necessary for the hour show. And, and that happens when we just finish producing the episode, so then it sits in the can or in storage at the network, and you know we take a break during football, we take a break sometimes during the year, and sometimes those episodes can sit for a while, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, with with last night's episode, I honestly forgot <laughs> forgot all about it. If those people had walked past me, I'm not sure I would have recognized them. But boy, I remember when I saw them and and uh, watching the episode and how touching that was. This was an interesting story. This was a guy who's a good musician, but you know, you use an excuse. You know, I want to be a musician. I want to be an institution. But you know, what you want to be is not an excuse for not allowing yourself to be what you should be now. And that's what happened in this episode. We had an owner who was a musician. And the fact of the matter is he slept late as his wife got up in the morning to go to her day job to support the bar that he liked playing his music in. Here's the point I want to make. I was a musician once. I played the drums, lived in Los Angeles, played the drums in bands and, and worked the club scene. Those of you who know me know I did that for years. But I also either worked in the troubadour or managed a troubadour at the same time. You see... You can't throw away tomorrow for today because today matters. Today is an important day of your life. You have to survive today. You also don't want to throw away tomorrow for today. That's integrity. If you throw away your opportunities for tomorrow to survive today, you run out of opportunities for tomorrow. But if you throw away today for tomorrow, how many todays are you going to lose? And he lost a lot of todays. And he disappointed his wife, and he disappointed himself, and he disappointed his business. But, you know, I'm pretty hard on him. And he was a nice guy, and I didn't go as nuts as I did on some other people who aren't quite as nice. But at the end of the show, uh, uh, he did step up. And he realized that, that and a lesson for all of us is you have to make today matter. You have to make a living today as well as tomorrow. You can't give up today 
hoping for tomorrow. That just makes no sense. That's the one in a bush over one in a hand idea, which is uh, uh, not smart. So in this case, think about that. Think about your today. How do you make today great and still plan for tomorrow? You don't do one or the other. You got to do them both. Well, an employee at Massachusetts College called the police. This is just unbelievably absurd. A black student sitting eating in the dining room and a student calls in and says, the student, quote, seemed to be out of place. So the student police come to this cafeteria, speak to this gentleman, find out there's nothing out of place at all, and uh, incident over. And I'm sitting and I'm thinking to myself, you know, in today's world of terrorism, we're told if you see something suspicious, speak up, speak up, speak up, speak up. That's all we hear, speak up, speak up. But yet we're scared too sometimes. We don't want to be rude. We don't want to be offensive. We don't want to get in trouble. I mean, in theory, you could get sued if you, if, if you uh, embarrass someone to a level that is uh, defames them. So what do we do in those situations? Imagine you're sitting in your, your college cafeteria. A gentleman comes in who really seems suspicious to you, and you have a choice. Do I embarrass him? Do I embarrass myself? Do I make a terrible mistake? Or do I pick up the phone and call somebody? You know, I think that's one of the biggest issues of today. And there's so many times that we'd have terrorists and other incidents where we should have picked up the phone and called and people didn't. And I wonder how those people feel now. I should have called. I should have called. So it's a dilemma. And I'm not sure what the answer is. I know that I tend to, you wouldn't know this watching me on television, but I know that I tend more often than not to take the polite route. So I probably would not make that call. And uh, maybe that's not the right answer. Which would you do? If you were in that situation and saw somebody suspicious, send me a note. Send me on Twitter. Send me on Facebook. I'd love to hear what you guys think. Would you make the call to the authorities or not? And, and be honest because I'm curious to see who says yes and who says no. I personally don't think that I would. So, you know, being a restaurant guy, I got to talk about something about restaurants. I don't understand how these things happen. But, you know, as one who travels around the country, and I must admit, I do fast food sometimes. It's just easy to do that drive through and drive in. The certain things about fast food that are fascinating to me. One, one company is so much better at it than the others, and I won't say which one it is. It tends to be the bigger one. You never get a cold hamburger at the big guy's. And the other chains are sometimes a little more inconsistent. So, you know, when you hear about McDonald's making a mistake, it's surprising to me because this is a company that has beeping, flashing alarms on every device in their kitchen. If a burger sits for more than 20 minutes, lights go off and alarms go off, so you can't get a burger that's sad or is cold. When French fries go on a fire, there's buzzers and lights that go off, so you can't get an overcooked French fry. It is so systemized that it's really almost impossible for something to happen in an operation that way that is so specified so tightly. But yet, a McDonald's accidentally served a pregnant woman cleaning fluid instead of latte. And that's what the manager says. You think about this. Somebody was cleaning something with cleaning fluid, probably had a big bottle, poured some of it in a coffee cup so that they could fill their rag from it or whatever. So it was in a smaller container, maybe more convenient. Put it on a counter. Somebody went to make a cup of coffee, put that cup with the cleaning fluid, and went out to a customer. And it's interesting in the food service business how one little mistake could lead to a catastrophe. And in this case, it did. Thank God this woman is okay, and she didn't hurt herself because uh, uh, 
That's a serious violation. In restaurants, cutting boards are color-coded. You use some colors for raw, you use some for cooked. There's areas where raw product go. There's areas where cooked product go. We never mix the two. We never mix containers. We always wash hands. So somehow, the wrong product got into the wrong container in the wrong place. No matter how much you trust the restaurants, always look at what you're eating. Always be careful. Make sure it's right, especially in a fast food environment because things happen very, very quickly there. You know, I was reading some articles today about Hillary Clinton and uh, Spielberg and how they were going to talk about the whole premise of, uh, of create a film on, on uh, women's right to vote. And that era when that was happening, and I read a book years ago, and I believe it was Calvin Coolidge, who was a president who was so famous for never speaking. He loved brevity. That was his big word. And I remember reading about an incident where he went to a, a presidential event with a bunch of women voters prior to women's voting. And it was an event that they were trying to persuade him. And a woman sat down next to President Coolidge. And I remember I read this in the article. She said to the president, Mr. President, my husband told me that you'll say more than three words tonight at dinner. Would you do so for me? And he looked at her and he only said two words. He said, you lose. (laughs) And that was the thing that I remembered. You know, brevity is a powerful thing. Brevity means your words mean more when you say them. And in business and in professional life, mastering brevity is one of the most difficult things you can do. Silence is an enemy. Because when there's silence, we try to fill it, don't we? In job interviews, when we're being managers, when we're being employees, whenever there's silence, we have this need to fill that silence with words. And we shouldn't. Silence is very powerful. Watch Bar Rescue. I use it all the time. Sometimes when you create silence, the first person who talks loses. So when we take a look at a show like this and talking to my audience, these are the opportunities where I'm not going to use brevity, where I'm going to speak out. And I got to speak out about Charlie Sheen because this is, I guess, funny and sad at the same time. Charlie Sheen, Mr. Tiger Blood. Mr. On Top of the World, Mr. Cool, Mr. Porn Star, Mr. Estate, Mr. Expensive Cars, Mr. TV Star. And I'm guessing he put a lot of other very, very flattering adjectives in front of himself. Well, here's the scoop. Charlie Sheen is so broke he can't afford to pay his child support. I always say on Bar Rescue, the guy with the biggest ego always seems to have the thinnest wallet. Here we go, Charlie. Well, your ego got bigger than your talent and your stature. So Charlie Sheen is claiming he's too poor to handle paying child support to both of his exes, Denise Richards and Brooke Muller. Apparently, Charlie filed some requests with the court system to adjust his child support payments, saying his finances are no longer insanely stuffed to the brim and he can no longer afford his children. This is why we need sex education, don't you think, folks? Too many wash-up stars that can't pay child support. So Charlie wrote, quote, I have been unable to find steady work and have been blacklisted from many aspects of the television industry, end quote. (sighs) You know, when we're an asshole, people tend not to like to be around us so much. 
When we embarrass ourselves, we embarrass the people around us. We embarrass our bosses. We embarrass our production companies. We embarrass our media partners. Sometimes we embarrass our own audience and our own viewers. Well, I feel no uh, sorrow for Charlie. I feel sorry for his family. This guy's getting what he deserves. Charlie, you just became too big an asshole. And now nobody wants to partner with you, work with you. Would you work with an asshole? I wouldn't. <laughs> so, Charlie's going down. What a surprise. My grandfather always used to say that life has physics to it. That everybody has a glass. And either the water rises high or it falls low. Charlie Sheen's glass is empty. It's been uh, getting lighter and lighter. And now it's completely empty. I do hope something happens for him, though, because I'd like to see his kids get a check. And a lot of them, if possible. All righty. So, I think it is my favorite time of the show. Hopefully your favorite time of the show too. I need you to do a couple of things for me. One, you got to hit subscribe right now at Apple Podcast. Go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app and you'll get you new episodes every Tuesday. Do it right now. Don't waste your time. The app will pause. I'll come right back where I am right now. So do it. Please hit subscribe at Apple Podcast. Go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app and you'll get you new episodes every Tuesday. Now, as far as audience participation is concerned, I love to hear from you guys. It's really important to me. Connecting with you, talking to you means more to me than you think it does. It's my favorite part of the show. Honestly, that's why I did this podcast was to talk to you more than any other reason. So I'd love to hear from you. Please email me. So please email me anytime at podcast at johntaffer.com, podcast at johntaffer.com. Send me your questions. Let me know what you want to talk about, and we'll set you up to come on a podcast, and we'll talk about it together with about 50,000 other of our best friends. So I have Lewis Howe, so I must tell you, this week, that might be my favorite part of the show. So stand by. Lewis is coming up in a little while. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. So this weekend, I was barbecuing all weekend. I barbecued on Saturday. I barbecued on Sunday. <laughs> I barbecued filet mignons, barbecued New York strips, and I barbecued chicken. And tonight... I'm going to barbecue pork, and I got them all at the same place, and I love them. I get all of my barbecue proteins from ButcherBox.com. It's an amazing service. I get 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, and heritage breed pork. They send it to me in a box with dry ice. It's all ready to go. It's all separately packaged, and I will consume it within about two weeks, two and a half weeks. It's delicious, and the minute I start missing it, Whammo, my next box arrives. You can eat the same steaks I do, no matter where you are in the same 48 states. So go to ButcherBox.com and using the discount code TAFFER at checkout and get yourself signed up. It's incredibly convenient. It's delivered right to your door on dry ice. Now there's a really special offer, so you don't want to miss out on this. Get $20 off and free bacon on your first box by going to ButcherBox.com and using the discount code TAFFER. Butcher Box delivers healthy, 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, and heritage breed pork directly to your door on a monthly basis. And remember, there's a huge difference in taste between animals raised on pasture and those fed grain in concentrated animal feedlot operations. 
pass on the feedlot operations and go for butcherbox.com. I'm a car guy. I can only drive one at a time, but I have four. And I'm always buying and selling my cars. And it's such a pain in the ass to buy a car. I can't understand why a car can park itself, but yet I have to drive across town to take a test drive to buy a new car. I find it interesting that I can get a mortgage in minutes online. I'm approved for a half a million dollar house in minutes, but to buy a car, I sit there all day, go from office to office, fill out form to form. It's incredibly inconvenient and it makes no sense. Buying a car is a pain in the ass until now. Hyundai has thought about all the same things and they're now making it possible to change it all with a program called Shopper Assurance. It includes flexible test drives that come to you. How cool is that? Transparent pricing for convenience. You know exactly what you're getting before you're in the middle of it. Streamlined purchase for efficiency. You're not spending those hours at the dealership. And the best part, a three-day worry-free exchange. If you're not happy, you exchange a car for one that will make you happy. The future of car buying is now available today in the present Car buying made easier is now possible with Shopper Assurance. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for all the information. That's Hyundai USA Shopper Assurance Program. Very cool. Tapper's back. This is No Excuses with John Tapper. Every once in a while, you, you, you meet somebody and you really uh, don't do your homework as much as you should. And, and that was the case of me with Lewis Howes. The story is I was on Lewis's podcast several months ago and, and letting my pants down for a moment, Lewis, I didn't know as much about you as I probably should have when I did your podcast because I, I was on a bit of a media tour myself, you might remember, and I was slamming a yep. bunch of them. And I was so blown away from our time together that I couldn't wait to have another conversation. And in the interim, I have learned so much about you. And your story is, first of all, it's it's mesmerizing to me, the life experiences that you've had and what you've been through. And we share some common challenges when we were kids and younger, uh, uh, which, uh, which, which was surprising to me. But you are one of the greatest stories of, of uh, pulling from within oneself uh, uh, that I've ever, that I've ever known, and I just got to tell it for a second, and then I want to introduce you properly, buddy, because you've really impacted me and, and made me uh, uh, um, better at being me just through meeting you. You know, when you when you were a kid, you say you were tall, skinny, and goofy looking. Uh, I, I'm, I look at you now, and, and uh, you're certainly not that now. But and then you talk about your moments of self doubt when you were a kid, and you're. Parents got divorced, uh, uh, and and uh, uh, your brother did jail time, and you were uh, uh, abused by a man, and, and and then your emotions played tricked on you. You didn't know where you were. You were lost as a child, and and I'm sorry to tell you a story for you, buddy, but I want my listeners to really know the impact of your life. And then somehow you wound up in arena football, and then an injury took that away from you, and you were lost a second or third or fourth time in your life, and. Uh, at that moment, after arena football ended and you had no injury, you had not had any really bright moments in your life mm-hmm. until arena football, did you? That's right. So then after arena football, you then got back up on your feet. New York Times bestsellers, one of the best podcasts I've ever been on, certainly. Uh, uh, um, and you've turned into an inspiration and example for everyone. And 
Lewis, welcome, buddy. It's it's an Thank honor you. to have you here. Thank you so and, much, and I appreciate uh, learning everything about you when we connected and just you opening up and opening your heart in a whole new way. It was very powerful. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. So I want to pick up your story when arena football ended. So so you had a, a struggled childhood. Arena mm-hmm. football ended. Where were you living then? What did you have when that yeah, all ended? I was in Huntsville, Alabama when I got injured, which is um, – uh, wasn't the best place to live back then. There's some nice parts, but for me, it was uh, not a fun place to live. Very small town in Alabama, completely different lifestyle, culture, um, and way of being, way of living. And I got injured there, had to have my surgery down there, and just tried to get out as quickly as I could. I, I moved back to Columbus, Ohio, instantly moved in with my sister. My dad had had a really traumatic brain injury two years prior, about a year and a half prior, actually. And uh, he was in a coma for three months. During that time, he had a car accident. So I didn't have my father and kind of his support to be able to go, you know, either have financial support from him or live at his place. So I went to live with my sister at the time. And I left college early, so I didn't have a college degree. Um, And at this time in 2008, the economy was pretty bad and people with master's degrees were getting fired because companies were laying off. Yep. And so I really just felt like I had no no clue what I was going to do. I, I lived on my sister's couch for the next year and a half while my arm was in a full arm cast. My wrist uh, was recovering from the surgery. They took a bone out of my hip, put it into my wrist. And so it was kind of just I had to recover anyway. So I had a, about a year of recovery time, uh, six months with the cast, and there's six months of rehab. So I couldn't do manual labor that worked during then anyways. So I kind of just had to live off my sister, eating her mac and cheese and leftovers while she went to work. And I kind of moped around all day long. And after about a couple months of watching TV all day long and feeling sorry for myself, I said, I got to do something. Um, I got to do something with my life because I was just not happy. I started to reach out to mentors. You know, I'd reach out to local business leaders, someone like yourself, I would reach out to and say, you know, how did you get to where you're at? What was the moment when you decided you were going to change things? What was, you know, the things that you did differently that allowed you to break through? And I was So you, you were on a quest for answers. Oh, I was on a quest, and I'm still on a quest. Yeah. You know, just because I've achieved certain things now doesn't mean it ever stops, and I'm sure uh, same with you. Mm-hmm. And I was on a quest, and I was reaching out to, to different people, anyone I could, that had achieved anything greater than me, I was willing to learn from. And one mentor said, why don't you check out LinkedIn.com, which was a a big site back then and it's even bigger now. And he said, I think people are getting jobs on there and you can meet people, influencers. And so I just went all in. You know, I was on my laptop all day long sitting on a couch because I was recovering still. And I was reaching out, doing phone calls with people, meeting people locally. And LinkedIn became my home base. I would spend about six to eight hours a day on there just reaching out one by one, emailing people, asking them questions, seeing if I could meet with them, seeing how I could connect them to other people. And as my network what was expanded. The, what yeah, what was the question that you asked in your initial email to open up contact with them? Uh, well, I would, a lot of things I asked early on and people just wouldn't reply. And so I had to learn how to ask a question and reach out to people in a way that they would want to reply. So at first it was maybe, you know, one out of 10 people would reply. And then it was nine out of 10 people would reply over time. 
And I really learned common principles of just being a, not being a jerk, not asking for something, being a good person, and trying to find common ground. You know, the more we find common ground, the more people want to connect with you and, and, and offer advice. And I never asked for advice. And I think that's the key. I would reach out in the first line. I would find three common areas of interest. And on LinkedIn at the time, you could see where they went to school, where they're from, their likes and interests, how many people they're connected to that you know, the groups they're in, alumni associations. So I would find people in Ohio and say, you know, I see that you went to so-and-so school. My father went to that school. And I see that you're, uh, you know, a football fan. I played professional football, and I find one other common area of interest and lead with that in the first sentence. So right away. You know, that's that, that's saying, really, it's so simple, but it's so brilliant at the same time. There's such stuff. a lesson in that for everybody. I and arrow because you know, people weren't just connecting do, with me. do a little homework, and you can find that's your it. door into do almost any conversation. I researched everything. And then I would always say, I would find, you know, homework was the key, and being prepared was the key, not just sending blanket messages. And I would really find out you know, when they made their jump, you know, if they went from uh, a marketing executive to the CMO, I was like, what was that year? And then I would ask them, what was the thing you did to really make that jump? I'm just curious and so inspired by your success. I'd love to hear your story. And as opposed to saying, I am broke. I'm living on my sister's couch. I've got no job. Can you give me a job or give me advice on how to get a job? I instead said, I'm so inspired by your success can you share your story on how you did it with me? I'm getting the exact same answer, but I'm framing it with a different question. And instead of asking for help. I react to that as well when people send me notes uh, uh, taking that type of a posture, because sure, you want to help somebody in that regard. Absolutely. But anytime someone says, hey, John, give me 10 minutes of your time, I just want to pick your brain and give me some advice on what I can do in my life. It's not as you don't have the time you're doing a million shows you're running around the world you're doing you know consulting you're doing everything you don't have the time but when someone's phrases it differently and says john i'm so inspired by how you went from a nightclub restaurant manager to having your own talk show or your own tv show can you tell me share with me your story and the big lesson you learned from that transition on how you made that stick and how you broke out of that i'm just so inspired by your success could you share with me the story it's a different question, but you're getting the same answer and you're building a different relationship with that person who wants to help you down the road anyways. So it's just reframing. I say the same thing exactly, but I say it in a different kind of way. I think you'll find this interesting. I say you got to create relevancy. So relevancy is, you know, why would I want to talk to you? Why are you important? Mm -hmm. What is relevant to me? that makes this conversation worthwhile. And selfishly, a lot of people go into a conversation without thinking about the other side and how to make it relevant to them. So what you've done by finding the Ohio or what, you know, whatever the linkage that you discover is, is you created mm-hmm. self-relevancy at that moment. And now there's okay. a relevant reason for that individual to open up their brain and listen to what you're saying. Uh, otherwise, if you just asked for help, you're not relevant. There's no relevancy. So it's interesting. We say it slightly differently, but it's exactly the same thing when you think about it. So you became relevant to everybody you talked to. You then assembled all of this information and turned it into your first book. Is 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 that what happened? And that's it. Yeah. I mean, my well, my I wrote a book about LinkedIn early on. 
because the more the bigger my network expanded on LinkedIn over the next couple of years, everyone started reaching out to me on LinkedIn and saying, "Hey, can you connect me to the CEO of this? Can you connect me to the CMO of that? I need to hire someone in this position. Can you find me someone?" So I essentially just became the ultimate connector. I didn't have any skills or talents at that time, but my ability to connect was the skill, and everyone came to me as the champion of their network. So, and so, then they started so, saying, hey, can you show me how to use LinkedIn for, for this, for that? So I just kept going down the path of curiosity and what people came to me for and, and did that for a while. So uh, you became the guy who knew the guy. <laughs> it is said to LinkedIn. And, okay. and so now you're, you're the centerpiece of communication and various mm-hmm. people communicating with you. You have all this wealth of information that you've learned about people's successes and their advancement. I'm guessing you're being exposed to marketing executives, operations executives, development executives, finance executives. So now you have this huge breadth of information. First of all, what did you do after the first book to keep the ball rolling? Mm-hmm. So your first book was on LinkedIn and the power yep. of LinkedIn. Where did you go from there? I, I did a 20-city uh, LinkedIn networking event tour where I was hosting these events all around the country using LinkedIn to, to get 300 to 500 people to show up. This is back in 2009, and I'd use LinkedIn to get people to show up to these three-hour networking events in major cities around the country. And I would take my book and sell them you know, one-to-one uh, to people. I would sell sponsorships at the events. I would build relationships with uh, the, the restaurant and bar owner. And you'll appreciate this. I would call the bars and restaurants and say, what's the, the least busy night of the week for you? It was usually a Tuesday or Wednesday night or something like that. And I'd say, okay, if I bring 500 people, when you usually get five people, and will you give me a 15 or 20% commission on the food and bar sales? And I started to build these relationships with these bars and restaurants that loved me because I would bring their busiest night on their weakest night and uh, continued doing that for about a year and a half um, and just figured out, like, how can I earn more out of this? You know, first I did free events. Then I started charging $5 at the door, $10, $20, and just kept learning, like, okay, I did it this way. How can I make a little more money? How can I maximize this? How can I add more value? It was really my master class. It was my master's degree of just learning how to do anything as an entrepreneur because I never made money before that except for playing football. And I had to learn and make a lot of mistakes along the way. Wow. Now, I want everybody to know because I've been in your apartment right now that <laughs> that Lewis is speaking to me, I'm guessing, from your beautiful apartment right off Sunset yep. Boulevard yep. Uh, yep. by Doheny. <laughs> Looking yeah. down towards the city with a beautiful view, and you've come a long way from that couch <laughs> in Ohio. Yeah. And what's fascinating to me is this was no master plan, was it? You just no. took each entrepreneurial step one by one as you went. You know, I, I really it, had it no clue that- you know, how to get to where I'm at now. I just knew that I needed to get off my sister's couch then. And yeah. what was the step to get me off my sister's couch so I could get my apartment? My first apartment was not even, you know, off my sister's couch. I went to my brother's house for six months. I started to make a little bit of money, but I still couldn't afford my own place. So he let me, my sister was like, you got to leave. You've been here too long, mooching off me. So I spent $250 <laughs> a month for a room out of my brother's house. And then um, things started to grow even more from there. And I finally got my own apartment for $495 a month. And that was a scary time because I didn't know if I was going to be able to pay it. 
over the next few months. And but every time I, I increased my <laughs> rent, it was like my ability to create wealth increased as well, which has been always fascinating for me. I don't know if you've experienced that as well, but every time I was scared to go from a higher rent pay, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to afford this. Something unlocked in my mind and my ability to be productive and clearer about the decisions I was making that would serve the amount of you know finances that I needed to meet. So, yeah, it's funny. The same way it, it became uh, um, the expense became the challenge, if you will. And if mm-hmm. I'm going to upgrade my life, then I have to upgrade the things around my life, which means I have to upgrade my income to support those things. And, you know, you, you accept that responsibility upon yourself and then you make that commitment for growth. And Absolutely. You, you have to invest in yourself in essence, which is, is really what we're doing when we make those steps, right? Because we're making the moves Absolutely. before we necessarily have the money to do it. But if we don't invest in ourselves at those times, who the heck is going to? You know, it's interesting. You and I share so much. Uh, uh, we have some commonality in, in our childhood and disappointments. And my dad died when I was two and. My mom was married uh, three different times and I kept moving around and, 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 you know, we had our issues just like you do. And, you know, there was self-esteem and self-doubt issues when we were younger. And now we, we sit here and, and uh, heck, you've created a, a media machine. You're on everything from ABC to Ellen to People Magazine, Today, Huffington Post, Forbes, Men's Health, Entrepreneur Magazine, Fox and Friends. Uh, 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 uh. So, so. People need to know that sometimes these aren't master plans. Mm-hmm. It was that this is us waking up and just trying to do something smart and really good tomorrow okay. and working towards a shorter-term goal, uh, uh, not a five-year goal, not a seven-year goal, just working on short-term goals <clears throat> and then making each goal bigger. Would you agree with that? That's it. I think it's it's having the big the big dreams are awesome. I remember when I was on the, the – Ellen's show last year, and that was a big, it was a big dream of mine. You know, I was on my sister's couch about ten years ago. I remember sitting there watching Ellen and watching these other people, you know, dance when they come on stage with her. And I was like, man, wouldn't it be amazing if one day I'd be able to dance on stage with Ellen and and put a little hip bump with her or dance with her or do something fun? And there's no way that dream would have happened. A very slim chance that dream would have happened in the first. Few years, just me laying on my sister's couch. I didn't build this world. I didn't help anyone. I didn't serve people. But ten years later, it was possible. You know, there was a greater possibility of it happening, and, and a lot of things lined up to make it happen. And I even said that on stage. I was like, you know, I dreamed of being here one day, but I needed to take the smaller steps every single day for many, many years in order to even give myself the opportunity to make it happen. And I think that's where a lot of people lose sight is they want the big dreams now. But I was willing to, and I know you were willing to, you know, you worked at the Troubadour for years and and every other club there was. You put in the work, the hours, the reps, what I like to call as an athlete. You put in the game, the practice reps every single day to master the craft to where you could understand you know, bar, restaurant culture, and really people culture so much to where you became a a conduit of understand human psychology of what makes people light up, what gives people the emotional charge to want to take action, to want to show up to an, an event, an experience, a bar, to want to buy more, to want to connect, to want to stay longer. And that's what I learned in my own way is how do we connect 
to people's hearts? How do we find out what people really want? And how do we bring that out of them so that they're willing to share and impact more people in my own channel? And that's that's where I think we do things very similar. Yeah, we do. We do. You know, it's interesting as I worry sometimes about the current generation and the more younger workforces because, you know, I, I noticed that people and I call it, you know, immediate gratification or, or, or the generation of gratification mm-hmm. you know, because <laughs> of social media today. I can post a picture of myself, the worst I've ever looked. And within minutes, people will say, you look great today, John. Great picture. <laughs> so we get this instant gratification today through social media. And the gratification is is typically BS. It's just people, you know, sort of giving us that pat on the back, even when we don't look good or we don't sound right or they say we do. And, and I find with a lot of younger people, unlike you and I, they want to get promoted quicker. They want everything to happen mm-hmm. quicker. They want the money quicker. And and they get frustrated when it doesn't happen as fast as they'd like it to. And then they leave a position or leave a goal and then move on. Whereas you and I, coming from a different type of environment, know that we're not going to get it all today. We're not going to get it all tomorrow. There isn't always instant gratification in what we do. Sometimes it's going to take freaking years to get that right. point of gratification. That's it. There's there's things that I want right now, but I know that I still have to put in lots of reps. For for example, I was uh, shooting three days in a row recently, um, from 8:30 a.m. till six o'clock. And I know you you do this on a regular basis, even longer hours than me. But three days in a row on Hollywood Boulevard, doing Q&A on the streets, called kind of like man on the streets type of video content. Full crew, nine of us. And these are long, hot days where I'm like wrangling people, trying to get the answers we need to produce, you know, a a nine-hour day for a three-minute video. And you've done this for years, obviously. But for me, I was like, you know, Jimmy, and this is for part of a talk show that I'm launching on on Facebook in a few weeks. And this Mm. was um, when I was out there standing in front of Jimmy Kimmel's uh, building, actually, on Hollywood Boulevard. And I'm thinking to myself – and this is a long, these are three long days. I'm like getting burned out here. People were like wrangling tourists and having asked them questions to produce this like three minute thing to make it feel authentic and not too staged or whatever. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm looking at Jimmy Kimmel's huge like column building with his banners all over Hollywood Boulevard. And I'm thinking yep. he and Jimmy Fallon and all these other guys probably spent 10 years doing man-on-the-street content or content like this, wrangling people, you know, long days, perfecting their craft before they got the big Hollywood Boulevard talk show. And even though that's something that I aspire to create in the future, I'm not trying to make some grandiose thing happen right now. I'm trying to do the best I can with what I have. And if something great happens and it expands into something bigger quicker, awesome. But I'm not going to let myself be out of been out of shape if I don't have the Hollywood Boulevard talk show tomorrow. And I think that's where people, you know, especially the younger generation, learn need to learn that you've got to put in so many practice reps. You were in, in restaurants and bars for a decade, two decades, however long it was, until you got to where you are. And I think that's where people need to learn. See, the gratification isn't sometimes in a reward. The gratification has to come from the work. Absolutely. The gratification has to come from the work accomplishment of the day, even if it isn't coming back your way, even if it's uh, output that you've done for something else. And I think that gets lost sometimes. And I think the the lessons uh, that you and I have learned together 
is that you know there is no master plan all the time. We wake up, we do the best we can, we come up with a plan based upon the opportunities that are facing us today, and we work it. And as John Lennon said, life is what happens when you make other plans. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. and, and so many people call and talk and say, you know, I need my plan, I need my plan. You know, I'm in college, I don't have my plan. You know, sometimes you don't have a plan. You, you just uh, 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 do what you need to do every day. Keep your eyes and your ears open. And as Grant Cardone says, you show up. <laughs> and, That's it. And, and you work the moment. I was thinking, what does Lewis House do for a living? And I wanted to think about this. And I thought to myself, <laughs> well, you know, he's a media guy. And yep, yep, yep. And he's an author. Yep, yep. And he's a researcher. Yep. And he's a motivator. Ah, oh, he's got a motivate. And I'm coming up, and I came up with one word to describe the business that you're in. You're in the greatness business. Mm-hmm. You learn about it. You communicate it. You connect it. You teach it. You, exp- you, you radiate it. Your business is greatness. And because of your passion for greatness, Lewis, you yourself have become great. And Thank that's, you. Yeah. That that's the the great part of what your story. And I don't know anyone else who's in the business of greatness. So hats off, buddy. I'm so glad we're getting to know each other. Thank you. Yeah, and when I'm in Vegas, I'm gonna have to come to a a, a hockey game and and see if they win the championship this year. Oh boy, I'd love to go to a night's game. There's (laughs) nothing like it. The energy is unbelievable. And, and consider that uh, done. We, I think we start in 75 days or so. Count, <laughs> You're counting count down. Days <laughs> we are. Anyway, thank Lewis, you. thank you, my, my buddy. It was a pleasure. Where can everybody find you? Please tell them about your podcast. Yeah, and where everybody pod, can find yeah you. podcast is uh, School of Greatness. You can find it on any platform podcasts are on. Um, and then just at Lewis Howes on any social media site and LewisHowes.com. Excellent. And Howes is H-O-W-E-S. Thanks, buddy. That's right. Thanks so much, John. And we're taking a quick pause for thanks to our sponsor. I love when people watch Bar Rescue. Obviously, the more the merrier. But getting your TV signal today can be really, really expensive and really difficult. And a lot of people pirate, and that's not right either. Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. On Pluto TV, you can watch over 100 TV channels and thousands of movies on demand, all completely for free. Pluto TV never asks you for a credit card, and you don't even need to sign up to watch for free. And it's completely legal. Pluto TV is the legal way to watch your favorite TV shows and your hit movies for free. You can download Pluto TV at the App Store, Google Play, for free on all your favorite devices today, including your phone, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, Smart TVs, PlayStation, and anywhere else you stream. So what are you waiting for? Watch 100 free TV channels and thousands of movies on Pluto TV now. All righty. So I think it is my favorite time of the show. So let's see. We have Jerry's from Phoenix, Arizona, Casey. Yes, Jerry's from Phoenix, Arizona, who uh, has realized, John, what we all know is that you're a great communicator. He just wanted to say thank you. <laughs> he, changed, uh, he changed his life. So what do you want to talk about today, Jerry's? What I wanted to tell you is I have a degree in communication, and I love public speaking. It's a passion of mine. But what I wanted to say is I'm new to the bar rescue stuff. I've just discovered your stuff probably within the last couple of months. But what I've gotten from the show, but more effectively after watching some of your keynotes and talks at Google, is you are a genius communicator. 
you know exactly what you're doing, have full control. Like you use communication uh, at a different level as a tool from everyone else in business and how they're using it. So something like me that I can see that stuff, I study that stuff, I really appreciate what you're doing. And I can really see what level and how well you frame things and adapt to certain situations. And basically you put the right pressure and the right precision in every aspect, in every conversation, every business deal, just perfect for what you do. And I really appreciate it. And I can really notice how good you are at what you do. Uh, thank you. That's nice of you to say. I hope everybody who thinks I'm a screaming maniac is listening right now. <laughs> you know, I really learned well, that's this what as I a get public too, speaker. From a business perspective, people think I'm a screaming maniac too. But really, I just put the – if I see someone basically – doing the equivalent to drinking poison in their business. You don't just say nicely, hey, I think you should do this differently. You yell at them and say, put that down. What the hell are you doing? And not everyone has the same intensity or at least the guts to do it. Uh, Thank you, Joyce. That's really nice of you to say. You know, it's funny. When I do Bar Rescue, I'm really only there for four days. And the first night, recon, I'm only with them for an hour, hour and a half. And and then uh, I don't see them again until the next day. And the next day, I'm I'm obviously working on design and and we're filming. So, you know, I, I... Here's the secrets that people don't know about Bar Rescue. A, I don't say a word to them that isn't on camera. The minute the camera stops, I walk away. So there is no communication with anyone that isn't on camera. My anger is real. And if it isn't real, it's if it's contrived because I'm trying to make a point with them, then they have to think it's real because they have to fear me sometimes. And you'll appreciate this as a communications professional. You know, these people are stuck. They just can't get out. Some of them have lost a half a million dollars. They're living in their parents' basement. You know what I mean, Jerry? They just can't get out of their own way. So now I come in. I'm not the first person to tell them their bar's dirty or it doesn't run right or they're out of this or out of that or it's dirty. Uh, They've heard that before. I have to say it in a way that, that registers. Well, loud is a good way to start. When you're loud and angry, people tend to listen to you. They don't blow off what you're saying as much. But what a lot of people don't realize on television is I'm going for one of three things. See, they're resistant to me in the first place, Jerry, as you can probably imagine. So how do I crack through? First, I try pride. What happens when your business closes? How are you going to feel then? How often do you say no to your children? I try to create pride. If I can attack them through their own pride, then that's a way for me to get in. Some of them don't have pride. So now I go at them with fear. What happens when you lose your house? What happens when your wife loses you? What happens when the IRS knocks on your door? And I try to play fear. And if fear doesn't work, well, I couldn't get through on pride. I couldn't get through on fear. So now I'm just going to beat the hell out of them. And what I have to do, Jerry, is I just challenge and challenge and challenge and challenge because they have this false ego that you can't break through because they think they know. So by challenging and challenging and challenging at one point, they resist or they actually disagree with themselves. And if I challenge them enough at one point, they say, huh, maybe this guy's right. And in that one moment, their brain opens up a crack and I can walk in. I must make them doubt themselves. And it's through that doubt that I can break through. It's really hard. And obviously, as a communications professional, you're watching it. It's not so easy to crack through all the time, Jerry's, as you can imagine. I agree. Well, thanks for the call. It's been great talking to you, buddy. And and uh, keep watching Bar Rescue. It's, it's always I'm great honored. to hear a, a new fan. I, I appreciate We're, you. I, I'm honored to speak to you and hit him with the hind. Thank you. I will. Take care, buddy. Let's cruise over to Ontario, Canada. Jeff is on the line. Now, Jeff 
has a potential employer that he gave some sales to, and now he has an even bigger sales solution for them, and he's trying to figure out how to leverage that opportunity. So let me see what you got. So you've worked on a product, I'm guessing a software type of a product? It is. It's a software solution. It's basically a formula that ties in um, CAD design work to sales and manufacturing departments and just streamlines and automates the whole process. Well, first of all, I would would file a copyright on it immediately so that when you (laughs) send it to them, it has a circle C on it. That's the first thing that I would do, right? And that's easy enough to do. Just print up all the coding and just send it to the copyright office in Washington. The minute you do it and put circle C on a page, you're protected. That's the first thing I would do. The next thing that I would do is I would go in with that protection and and present it to them in, in, in whatever way that you can. Let them know that it's protected. And I would have a witness or somebody go with you to the meeting because uh, uh, most laws do not permit the theft of intellectual properties. So if you can claim that your thoughts are original, you've copyrighted those thoughts, you've really armed yourself to be in a good position to prove the value to them. I went through a similar thing a couple of years ago. I created okay. Bar, H- Bar HQ, which was an app I created for the bar industry for free. And I got about 90,000 downloads. We did very well, but it was an app that managed social media and payroll and labor and things like that for the bar business. And it cost me about $380,000 to to build the app. So what I did is I sold advertising. Well, I guess I can say to who. I sold advertising to Anheuser-Busch, who partnered with me on the app before I ever built it. So I built it on their money, got them to sign a three-year advertising contract, ran Bar HQ for three years and then sold it for a whole bunch of money to another company. So that so that raises my next point. Who is this company's biggest competitor? Don't answer. Just, don't answer. Just come up with that answer in your mind. That's okay. where I would bring this first. You see, you want to be relevant. Be relevant to their competitor. That makes you relevant to them. That's right, and and that's uh, that's where the question was because I want to make sure that now they approached me back in March to come work for them. So I want to, I found the solution after I turned down the job, and we went through a process, and I raised up the valuation of the job, and ultimately turned them down. But I want to still do business with them, and I still I still think there's a value to myself to continue to work for them, make sure that it's not a one way street, and you know, give them sales orders and everything, and then you know, for one direction. So this is a product that could be used by more than one company, correct? Because it's not a proprietary sales product. It's more of an order fulfillment and administrative type of a product? Yeah, it's more of a, like a, a formula within the software that exists already. So it's not necessarily a new app. It's um, maybe a way of thinking about it would be if you had an Excel spreadsheet and you had a certain system of formulas that, that automates everything in the, in the spreadsheet for you. So they were internally trying to figure out how to do that within their CAD software and couldn't come up with a solution. And I just I, I did over over the past couple of weeks. You know what the problem is with companies like this, you know this, is they sign you to work for them either as a contractor or on a payroll and every idea you come up with and every code that you write, they own. And you have no That's rights right. to. And uh, so the question becomes, it's almost like any other business transaction, where is the value for them? If they're prepared to pay you X amount of dollars to build this for them, knowing that they're going to own it when you're done, uh, uh, um, that's scenario A. If they feel that your value has a cap for that $20,000 more that they've offered you by, if they don't go higher than that, then they've established their value for you. 
So the only thing you can do is increase your perceived value. So absolutely, and and that's if they, if, let me let me finish my point. If they've okay. already started dialogue with you on this software and uh, this application and how it would work for them, and if they understand your thinking on it, don't sell them that anymore. Sell them the next phase. Sell them what you can do with it over the next three years and create a far greater value than what they're looking at. So my point is, yep, you can build this. It's in your head. My guess is if I understand it enough, I could probably get somebody to build it too. But what I can't build is your future view. You have to increase your value to them and show them this is stage one. Stage two and stage three are going to be much more business altering. These are the ideas for two and three. This is a three to five year project to do this right. I want to do it for you, not your competition. I think you have to up the value by upping the long-term view and perceived benefit of the of the program. Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. And I hope that's helpful to you. It is. I appreciate that. It's just a you know, it's a fresh perspective, and I, I have a lot of respect for what you've done, uh, both in in uh, TV and and with the podcast and books. And I actually read your book right after I turned on the job offer and said, you know what? There's a couple things I might consider differently if I read that first. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure talking to you. Take care, buddy. Pleasure talking to you, John. Take care. Let's go over to Zach in Indianapolis, Indiana, who uh, he just wants to say thank you. He's a huge fan, huge Bar Rescue fan. He wants to say thank you. Hi, John. How are you? I'm doing great, buddy. You're in Indianapolis, huh? Indianapolis, Indiana, the heartland of America, racing capital of the world. Years ago, I used to work with uh, – I used to have a bunch of restaurants that I owned in malls years ago, and I used to work with the Simon Property Group, who's based in Indianapolis there. And I'll never forget, uh-huh. many years ago, they did a big event, and we all came to Indianapolis, and we did bed races at the Indy 500 tracks. So we had hospital beds on wheels and teams, and we all had a race around the racetrack. That was actually a blast. And I lost There's miserably, a by the way. Tradition at Ball State University, my alma mater, bed races for homecoming. Ah, so that's a pretty popular uh, thing out there, then. I suppose so. Yeah. Yep. What do you do, Zach? Um, I am actually I'm in retail. I work at a Simon Mall, and I am currently in school to be a middle school teacher. Wow, that's terrific. So you want to be a teacher? You want to impact our children? And yes, sir. It's it's. I want to talk about that for a minute, if that's okay. Why do you want to be a teacher in one sentence? Why do I want to be a teacher in one sentence? Uh, Because I have a passion for helping helping children and coaching. That's how what I got into, and I just want to be a positive role model and do the best job that I can to uh, to help uh, shape the future leaders. That's a perfect answer. So at the end of the day, you're doing it because you love children and you love impacting them. You know, I was uh, changing topics on you, little Zach. I just came back a few weeks ago from Puerto Rico. I did the uh, Operation Puerto Rico episode uh, um, of Bar Rescue. And when I was down there, you know, the basketball field was – the basketball court was destroyed and the baseball field was destroyed. And all the kids were playing basketball in the street with potholes. And one of them had a, you know, a hurt ankle from doing a jump shot into a pothole. And I got to spend a week with these kids. And – Zach, you know, I I get jealous of somebody like you because you're going to get to spend a lot of time with them in your lives. But for about a week and a half, I was with these kids every day. Nothing has inspired me more than than these children and looking in their face. And when you look in their faces, you realize, you know what? We're going to be okay. How long is your school teacher? Uh, I have about a year left. So I actually just started my student teaching today. I am on a break period. It just worked out perfectly that I'm able to talk to you today. 
Wow. So today is your first day as a student teacher? My first day as a student teacher. Yes, sir. Wow. That's terrific. Congratulations, Zach. I am going to send you a shut it down button, buddy. <laughs> that sounds great. I want you to have that because so, you shut it down today. How was your first day? Oh, it, it's, it's been great, John. It's been really great. Uh, I think it's going to be an awesome semester, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to doing whatever I can to get better every single day and uh, continue to not make excuses because really that philosophy is uh, I put it off. I put off being a teacher for four years. Uh, I finished my undergrad four years ago, and I put it off, put it off, put it off, and um, I was ready to be done with that. So. Wow. So what's your message break, to other people solution. who are putting things off like that? If it's weighing on your mind, you're still young. Like I'm, I'm 26 years old. I'll be young when I'm 39 years old. If I was making this decision when I was 39, cool. I'm glad I'm making it now, though. Um, there's no time like the present. Um, if it if it keeps weighing on your mind, and it's still there, four years after you graduate college, five years after, ten years after you graduate college, if you think it's going to make you happy, take control of your happiness, and uh, yeah. don't don't let don't let anything scare you away from that. You can you can make the sacrifices. You can make the changes necessary. You just and need you to did. start with the and you did. To do so. And you did. You know what you know what I'm I tell people way. all the time, Zach? When you look yes, at sir. life, you think about the things that we do and the things that we don't do. Five years from now, you don't look back at your life and regret the things you did do. You regret the things you didn't do. And if you look at your entire life, anything that's more than five years ago. We really, again, don't regret the things we don't do, but boy, we regret the things, uh, rather we don't regret the things we did do, we regret the things we didn't do. And here's an example of it. You regretted not doing it earlier. If you had done it earlier, you wouldn't regret doing it earlier, would you have? Nope. There's a lesson in that for us all. So again, remember, we don't regret what we do. We typically regret much more about what we don't do. Zach, great to talk to you, buddy. Thanks for the call. Oh, thanks for having me, John. Thank you. I like there to be some meaning, some takeaway from every podcast that we do. One, believe it or not, is Charlie Sheen. If you make yourself an ass, you're only going to hurt yourself a long time. People won't work with you. So remember, people work with people they like. People work with people they respect. There's a lesson in Charlie Sheen's demise. Think about it. Don't let yourself black out. Go for it. Go for it. No excuses. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. If you're looking to buy a car, you're probably familiar with terms like MSRP. You might even know what it stands for, but what does it actually mean? The same goes for invoice, list price, and dealer price. It's enough to confuse anybody. All you're really looking for is a price that actually means something. Introducing True Price from True Car. Now you can know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories, before you even get to the dealership. True Car dealers will show you the true price on cars like the one you want, all from the comfort of home. And how do you know if your true price is a great price? Because True Car shows you what other people pay for the same car you want. And your certified dealers know this, so they set their true price competitively so they can win your business. So when you're ready to buy a new car or a used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience.